At special times, believers in the Old and New Testaments believe that they ought to make covenants together vowing that they would obey King Jesus. Following in their footsteps, in 1638, Scottish Christians signed the National Covenant which rejected the enforcement of prelacy on the Presbyterian Church. When threatened to have these rights taken away, the Scottish Covenanters in 1639 united under the Blue Banner which read, For Christ's Crown and Covenant. As direct theological descendants of the Scottish Covenanters, the RPCNA still honors the Blue Banner for what it stands for, that Jesus is the only head and king of his church. The Blue Banter podcast's goal is to go about informing the reforming by introducing you to our pastors and under-shepherds of Christ's church. By listening to this podcast, you will have greater clarity on the blessings and challenges faced by each of our congregations. We pray that the Lord blesses you through this podcast for Christ's crown and his covenant. Well, we want to welcome everybody back to another installment of the Blue Banter podcast, a podcast where our goal is to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and also to serve uh, young and aspiring pastors by gleaning wisdom uh, from the pastors that are already serving uh, in our denomination. My name is Joe Smith. I am the pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Denver, Colorado. My name is uh, Aaron Murray. I'm the pastor here in Marion, uh, Indiana. If quilting is your thing, we are the place for you because we have a world-famous quilting museum. Um, I've never been there, but I heard it's great. So if you're into that kind of thing, <laughs> head on up to Marion. We'd love to have you. Uh, but joined with us today is Daniel Howe. Daniel Howe is the pastor in uh, Rhode Island at uh, Christ Church, I believe is the name. Is that is that right, Daniel? Yeah, Christ Reformed Presbyterian Church. Okay. Gotcha. And um, we're really uh, excited to have you on and uh, thank you for giving us your time here. Um, kind of want to just jump into these questions here. I I told Joe, I think that uh, this podcast is kind of the marketing wing of uh, Grass Market Press because about 50% of our guests so far have either written a book or are currently writing a book for uh, Grass Market. And uh, you're no exception. You've got one um, kind of in the pipeline on the Lord's Day. You, you had told us a little bit uh, before we started recording that you weren't sure um, when it was coming out, but do you have a rough target date on when people can expect your book? Yeah, I uh, I think we're going to have it out in the spring. Um, I would guess it's going probably going to the printer probably in April. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully we'll have it available for sale through Chronic Covenant um, April, May, thereabouts. Um, I'm, I'm definitely hoping for by the summer. Um, the manuscript is complete. Layouts in the works. Final edits are uh, in the works and uh, working on all that good stuff right now. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm excited to read it. I think uh, that the idea of the Lord's day is kind of falling on hard times um, in Protestant circles in general, but even in RP circles, um, I'm finding that it's, it's not as uh, as a cherished of a uh, doctrine and position as, as many people uh, once used to have. Um, but so I guess you can kind of talk about uh, the Lord's day, however you want Um I mean, sometimes when people interview people on their books, they talk so much about the book, you don't really need to read it. And I don't want to do that. You know, I want people to buy your book and, and read it. Um, but I did have one question, and this actually was uh, was spurred on by a question that somebody asked me. And I'm not sure my answer was the best, so I want to kind of punt it to you. You've been thinking a lot about the Lord's Day. Um, but the Ten Commandments are given to us in two places um, in mm -hmm. the Pentateuch. The first is, of course, uh, Exodus 20. And when the Lord's Day is talked about there, or the Sabbath rather is talked about there, it says, um, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then again, in Deuteronomy 5, it's uh, Moses says, keep the Sabbath. So I just wanted to kind of put this question to you. What do you make of the difference in um, the description of how we are to remember or to keep the Sabbath? So so I'm, I'm going to do one of those things where where you're asked a question and then you turn it into answering a slightly different question. Right, hopefully, hopefully it. it won't be so so radically different that you're annoyed. Mm -hmm. um, so the difference between if there is any difference between um, observe, the ESV says observe uh, a, a nice literal one would be um, keep. Uh, it's the same uh, term that gets used when Adam and Eve are, you know, when Adam is put in the garden to keep and guard it mm -hmm. uh, or to tend and keep it. Um, uh, and in Exodus 20, where it says, remember, I think that I think if there's any shade of difference, it's really minimal. So you can have remember in the sense of 
recall bring to mind, but you can also, but you could also have the Lord remembering his covenant. And it's not like the Lord was like, Oh, Oh, I have a, I had a covenant. I forgot about that. It's more like keeping the terms of something or respecting something. Um, and with, uh, with observing or keeping, then there's, there's more of a little, little bit of a connotation of guarding. Um, I actually think the more interesting difference is in the reason given for the two, uh, in the two tellings of the Ten Commandments. The biggest difference between the two um, uh, tellings of the Ten Commandments or givings of the Ten Commandments is in the, the reason given for the Fourth Commandment. So in Exodus, the reason that's given is creation-based. Um, mm-hmm. The Lord, uh, you know, in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and so on. But on the seventh, he rested in uh, the ex- or in the Deuteronomy five giving of the commandment, um, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, but the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And um, I think those are really uh, those are kind of the two poles of of uh, of our frame of reference as believers is creation and the example that God gives in creation, and then redemption. Mm-hmm. And remembering what has been done for us in redemption. And of course, our redemption, you know, the, our redemption doesn't stop with the Exodus. Our redemption, uh, although that is our story too, because we're mm-hmm. children of Abraham through faith in Christ. Um, but our story is framed in those two ways. So in the uh, looking to Christ or looking to God's example in creation, I mean, it should be really striking to us that God. That, you know, the, the story is told that God created in seven days, that he didn't just create, period. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're given details that we don't need. We're given other details. We're not given other details that we might like, but we are given this uh, really important um, sort of framework. And I think it is precisely, and I'm relying on the work of, of smarter people than me for this, but I think it's precisely to give us a pattern of work and rest, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's why the Lord made everything in, in six days and rested on the seventh day. And he's like a farmer or a craftsman um, who gets up in the morning, looks at what he has to work with, works on it, stops at the end of the day. And then on the seventh day, he rests and he enjoys what he has done. Um, and that's for us. That's not because God needed to do that. That's that's given to us uh, so that we know that we are supposed to take a week and we are supposed to work on six days. We're supposed to rest on the seventh. Mm-hmm. And then the the flip side of that is there that, that redemption end. Um, I just think that is so important for Christians as new covenant people. Okay. Um, you know, we are not just given a, a bare command. You know, the Lord doesn't just say, observe the Sabbath, you know, full stop. And he doesn't just tell us to look backwards to his example. Look what I did, full stop. But he actually says, look what I did for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I took you out of a world of um, there's a I think it was I think it was this guy's phrase. There's a German philosopher named Joseph Pieper um, who wrote a book called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And I think it was his he coined the term total work. Um, that we live in a world of total work. And I think that's actually more true uh, probably for millennials and for Gen Z folks to a little bit lesser extent, they're still coming up, uh, but for millennials, probably more true than for previous generations um, that we're in a world where we are really defined by our work. And um, that's that's the spirit of Egypt come back, Right. And so for the Lord to say, I redeemed you from that. Now, continue to remember, you know, observe that I redeemed you from that by not working yourself. But it actually goes way further than that. He goes into detail on all the different members of your household that you are not to make work. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is where when I when I bump into Christians who are like, yeah, well, look, the Sabbath's for us. So we we get to enjoy, you know, as Christians, we get to enjoy that rest from our labors. But, you know, hey, if I want to go out to brunch after church, they're they're not Christians. They don't sort of have a, a right to that or I shouldn't expect them to observe that. And I just think, oh, you've got it exactly backwards. I would rather that you took more effort. I'd rather I don't want you working per se, but I'd rather that 
you went to a little bit more effort and like cooked your own dang food mm-hmm. and allowed other people because anybody who's within your sort of um, sphere of influence is to you as the people that are mentioned in the Exodus and Deuteronomy commandments, your children, your servants, your livestock, the stranger within your gates, you know, that's the, the ancient um, sort of um, uh, locus. It's a, it's going to sound like SAT words, but locus of economic activity, right. Mm-hmm. The, uh, was the household or was the, was the ancient compound, right? So you have an extended family living in a compound together a uh, bunch of houses all kind of stuck together and the livestock are downstairs and the people sleep upstairs yeah. and the fields are outside. And that's like, that's like the the village or the town plus the factory, plus the school, plus a lot of things. And, and just like God is saying, you ancient householders who have strangers within your gates and servants and children and livestock, you need to give them rest. We're in, we're in the same place. It's just slightly different roles. We're to give rest to those within our reach of influence, uh, even more than we're supposed to take rest for ourselves. So I think one of the mistakes that we make is super privatizing the idea of, of the of the Sabbath, um, the idea of the Lord's Day as just something that's for me or you know, for me to enjoy. Mm-hmm. But it's actually something that I, there's a really important imperative. I'm supposed to give this to other people. Um, rather than just take it for myself. So I, I think those are, you know, I, there's no contradiction in there um, mm-hmm. as far as the two commandments go, but it is pretty amazing that we're given both kind of poles uh, as our frame of reference, creation and redemption to, to kind of uh, help us understand what mm-hmm. the Sabbath is about. Yeah, I, I certainly don't look at it as a, a contradiction as much as I do. It's an, it's an expansion of uh, the, the Sabbath principle and, and the Lord's Day um, um, parallels to that. And you, you bring up a good point as far as, you know, we privatized the Lord's Day, but it's okay for us to um, get brunch or go out to Applebee's or we have an Applebee's here in Marion. So that's why I use it. <laughs> um, I think I've been to that Applebee's. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's an Applebee's. It, it, I didn't get food poisoning. That, that is. Well, mm-hmm. Praise God. Um, one of the things that, that uh, I, I tell people is, you know, if you're, you're going out to eat, on the Lord's day, kind of imagine you, you meet someone on Saturday and you invite, invite them to church and they say, I can't because I've got to work. Well, then you go out to eat and who do you run into? But your server is the person that you invited to church. And so um, there, there's a whole bunch of things at play here, but at minimum, we're keeping people from the ability to even observe mm-hmm. or remember the Lord's day by engaging in a lot of this economic activity. Um, another thing that, that you kind of, spread a thought. My wife and I were talking about the Lord's Day a few weeks ago, and um, she brought up an interesting point that when it comes to, um, you know, the traditional marriage between man and woman, Christians rightly so are very quick to root it in creation mm-hmm. and and say, yeah, here is the foundational reason why um, it is one man and one woman. But when it comes to honoring the Lord's Day, that creation principle doesn't seem to hold near as much weight. And um, maybe we could grow in our consistency a bit as, uh, as Christians. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right about that. And it, it is really interesting that um, when when Jesus bumps into well, he doesn't bump into it. His, his questions about marriage are thrown at him mm-hmm. and he roots he roots it back in creation. And he does in a in a in a lighter in a less detailed sort of way. He also does the same thing with questions of Sabbath. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sabbath was made for man. That's creation That's- language. Um, and, and it's intended for for human flourishing, and, and th- there's there there's another there's another thing that I mean we could uh, complain and kvetch about a little bit is is like people who say well it says the Sabbath is made for man, and so therefore I get to define it any way mm-hmm. I want to. No, that's not what it means. It's yeah. like uh, it's like saying marriage is supposed to be a blessing to us, and therefore we get to do whatever we want to to it as well. It's mm-hmm. like yeah, well there's of course there's flexibility, and every marriage is different. And everybody's Sabbath is going to look a little bit different. And, mm-hmm. and the path to Pharisaism is micro defining what everybody's Sabbath day looks like. Um, but it, there are parameters, right? There, mm-hmm. there are, there are principles that we're supposed to be looking to follow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I hope people's appetite are uh, whetted for your book. I, I'm certainly looking forward to it. Um, 
Joe, do you have anything to add before we uh, go to the next question? I thought if, if it wouldn't be revealing too much about your book, it maybe be something that, that would further whet people's appetite. But I know somebody that came out, uh, being someone rather, that came out of broad evangelicalism into the RP church, you know, learning about the Sabbath was a process for me. And, and like you said, we want to avoid the pharisaical micromanagement um, of people's Sabbath. But what are just a couple principles that you've learned in your studies on this or that you would recommend if somebody came into your church? Hey, pastor, I, I really would like to start keeping the Sabbath day holy. Um, what are some things that could get somebody started? You know, sometimes, you know, it can be like with working out. If we try and add everything all at once necessarily, that can bog us down. But what are some some of those main or core things that somebody could really focus on? Uh, to start better honoring the Lord and, and delighting in the Sabbath themselves in that honoring. Um, yeah, no, I think that's. Uh, I, I think you might have frozen up on me there a little bit, Joe. You still there? There we. There we go. Yeah, I'm there here. We go. Um, no, I think that's. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and and I think overwhelmingly, uh, when I teach on this, when I preach on this, when it comes to the sort of the practical end of things, um, what I want to do is point people in the direction of what they should do rather mm -hmm. than point them in the direction of what they should not do. Mm -hmm. um, and when we see that the Lord's Day is something that we get to do, um, that it's really our chief holy day, uh, that really changes. I really think that changes the terms. Like every once in a while, you, you know, it's Thanksgiving day and somebody will be annoyed that, um, you know, the, the grocery store isn't open. Uh, but for the most part, people are like, well, I don't, I don't expect that. Right. This is, this is not a day for, for our ordinary business. This is a day when we're busy doing other good things. And I think the same is true of, of the Lord's day. So, so the big things, and this is actually the title of the book, uh, it was going to be the subtitle. And I actually asked at the last minute that they switch the title and the subtitle around. The The title of the book is Worship, Feasting, Rest, Mercy. Hmm. And I think that if you are if you are occupied with those things, um, you are you are not going to really miss very much the things you're not doing. And they're they're also going to point to. Like, what are our priorities on, on the Lord's Day? Are there occasions where I'll buy a tank of gas on a Sunday or even stop at a grocery store? Yeah, because emergencies happen. Stuff stuff comes up. And I don't want to have a super strict set of rules get in the way of doing the most important things. Um, on the other hand, I want to keep first. I do really want to keep first things first. So um, I think that... Uh, the overwhelming priority for Christians um, is worship, right? So uh, when we're faced with a situation where, you know, we can we can choose a shift. I, I know people who have gotten stuck working Sundays. And I mean, stuck, stuck. I mean, these aren't people who are like, yeah, I thought I could pick up an extra shift. Um, these are people like, you know, brand new people to the United States, no English skills, they got to take whatever they can get. And, and it's a down economy too, on top of that, right? You know, you can't, you can't get other, I got a job. I'm just so happy to have a job. Now let's work on getting you to church. Okay. All right. Now, as we have the possibility, let's work on you getting the day off, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what are you going to do with your day? What are you going to do with your day off? Are you going to watch TV all day? No. Well, worship, but there's also it's also supposed to be a day of joy and of, of celebration, right? When we look at, um, uh, for instance, the book of Esther, when um, uh, when the Jews are starting to celebrate Purim, uh, right? They're they're feasting and they're sending gifts to each other, gifts of food to each other, so that they can, so that those who are poor can celebrate. <laughs> um, this is supposed to be a feast day. Uh, it, this is supposed to be a day of gladness, right? It's uh, every ancient authority, whether Jewish or Christian, understands it to be inappropriate to fast on the Sabbath. Um, beyond that, it's supposed to be a day of rest, right? Insofar as we have opportunity, we are to take it as a day of rest. And the reality is, as you know, the the three of us here are Americans living in America where there's quite a bit of legal protection for us to take our, our day as a day of rest. 
um, we have a tremendous amount of opportunity to take the day as a day of rest. Uh, and then finally, the last component, which I think is really important, is mercy. And that takes multiple forms. But we do talk about, you know, in the Westminster Standards, we, talks about, we talk about works of necessity and mercy. Um, so I think if you're focusing on those four things, you're, you're on the right track. And sort of some details are going to vary. There's always going to be exceptions to things. You're going to bump into practical problems. Your kids are going to go, how come the other family in church does things differently? You're like, hey, you know, and then then you approach it with some humility and say, listen, we're we all have to make decisions for our own households mm -hmm. here. And this is I'm making I'm doing I, I say I now have currently and I think I'm at peak teenager probably for my life. I currently have four teenagers. Okay. No, I'm sorry, three, three teenagers and then a nine year old and a three year old. And uh, and I, I've had this conversation with them a handful of times. They don't always play this card, but every once in a while I have to play the card of look your mom and I are just doing the best we can here. <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, maybe we're wrong, <laughs> but bear with me because I think we're right on this. Um, so I think that's, I think that's the direction I'd point. And, but no, to your, to your point, Joe, uh, no, bite off everything at once, come up with a comprehensive list of rules. That doesn't work for me on anything, right? Uh, it, does, it doesn't work barely, you know, I've made hardly any progress uh, on a diet with a comprehensive list of rules. Why would I think that a you know brand new Sabbath practice is going to work just by multiplying rules? Mm -hmm. And and we know that uh, we know that that can end in madness too. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. Um, I was just reading something recently, and a guy was talking about you know when it comes to parenting, in a sense, there's there's very few like direct biblical commands, right? Like we're to teach our children about mm -hmm. the Lord. Uh, we're to discipline them. We're not to provoke them to anger uh, and we're to be thankful and to pray for them, you know, if you will. It's like how those are yeah. worked out, though, in particulars, uh, there's there's wisdom to be applied in that. And so that's really good. Uh, you've, you've whetted my appetite for the book. And so I'll uh, I'll be picking up a copy and do look forward to it. Um, shifting shifting good. gears. Hope just, it's uh, helpful. Yeah, no, I look forward to it. Um, so recently I uh, heard that you got a new building. And so we were just curious, um, how has the Lord used that building uh, to bless the ministry of the church out there in Rhode Island? So, uh, so maybe this, here's an east-west difference. I have to have to tell you, this is a used building. Just mm -hmm. to be clear, it's it's new to us, but it's a used building. And I, the only reason I bring that up is a little while back, I was listening to a, I think it was a Dave Ramsey. Uh, uh, show uh, this is the finance guy and somebody called somebody called him up and said hey my husband and I are trying to figure out whether we should buy a new house or a used house and I just thought as a guy who's only ever lived in <laughs> yeah. like 100 to 200 year old houses I thought used house you mean a house, right? right, like, right, right. Like, nobody's building a new house here uh, uh, or not around here so anyway it's a it's a old ish church, uh, old ish meaning 1960s. Um, yeah, we uh, so we started up as a church plant, uh, depending on when you count it. Our very first worship service was New Year's Day of 2006. Um, so a little over 17 years ago. And uh, I would say probably since before day one, I was looking around for a church building for us. And uh, and had many many moments of frustration and and prayers where it's like Lord why are why do we have to wait so long I don't understand, um, which in retrospect is all foolishness but you know hindsight is twenty twenty, uh, but yeah so about just about a little less than a year ago uh, back in uh, late February must have been late February of twenty three or of twenty two. Um, we had um, two different people, one from inside our congregation and one from outside our congregation sent me a listing uh, for this church building. And we had really looked at many buildings, um, some of them given a very serious look over the years. Uh, we came within a hair's breadth of buying one and um, uh, our congregation here, we found out that the other, we, we could have bought it. We could have bought it outright um had, had the opportunity to then we found out that the other church that was trying to buy it was a really excellent reformed baptist church that had been in that neighborhood ministering actively for a number of years they had 
take it. They, they had had people move into the neighborhood and they'd been cultivating a relationship with the church that was selling this building. And to their eternal credit, our congregation voted not to that in good conscience, we could not buy that building out from under them. So that, and that was, yeah. that was seven or eight years ago. And so since then, it's just been like, all right, Lord, we, we, we did what we thought was right. Please remember us. And, uh, and, and the Lord brought us a building that was better than anything we could have asked for. I mean, it really, really, um, ticked all the boxes. Uh, we've, we've got places to park, which we didn't know if we would ever have. It was always on street parking where we've been for the last 17 years. Um, we've got space more space than we know what to do with classrooms great sanctuary and um and then the outpouring you know we had to do fundraising and the outpouring of generosity from around the denomination and outside of the denomination from churches from individuals and families was unbelievable so we've been able to raise um we we set a target of uh what we needed to purchase it we had savings um uh, in, in place what we needed to purchase it when we took into account a mortgage um, plus 20% on top of the purchase price. And we've, we're within, yeah, we've gotten 90 something percent yeah. of wow. that fundraising. Yeah. So it's been amazing. And I think for me personally, as much or more than the building, it, that has been the great encouragement is just to see the, the love. And I mean, you know, we get, we've gotten donations from people I've never heard of um, just reaching out and saying, Hey, you know, we're really excited about this. Um, so the last, uh, so let me see, we moved in. Our first worship service was the first Lord's day in September of last year. So we've been in for about five months and it has been an unbelievable blitz of uh, repairs and renovations mm -hmm. the whole time. The place was in really good shape in many ways. But it needed a bunch of updates. There were certain things that weren't working. Uh, there's lots of things we just had to figure out. Um, but I will give a pro tip. If you ever have a church building that needs a bunch of renovations, what you need is a very motivated elder who has a daughter who wants to get married in that church building in four or five months. And let me tell you, stuff's going to happen. So that's what we had. Uh, our first wedding took place on january 7th mm -hmm. and it was fantastic and we were in a sanctuary where we had i mean there was new paint we got all the pews painted and or sanded and repainted there's new floors throughout the place the heat worked the kitchen was cleaned up and working i mean it was unbelievable amount of work and so uh so right now we're we are at uh I would say the lull where everybody who like exhausted themselves through the, the first four or five months we were here kind of gets to take a nap a little bit during the winter. Mm -hmm. And then coming up into the spring, we're going to need to like, uh, we're, we're going to need to talk seriously. All right. How do we fill this thing? Right. So mm -hmm. we went, we went from a building where we were routinely about 80% full. And if you're 80% full, you're full. Right. Yep. I mean, it, if yep. you can't, there's no such thing as filling every seat in a in a sanctuary. Um, so we went from a building where we were routinely 70, 80% full and feeling like, oh, we really don't have any room to grow to a building where we are maybe 50% full, maybe, okay. maybe more like 40% full. We don't, it doesn't feel like we're rattling around in there and this is the wrong place for us, but it feels like, yeah, we we the Lord gave us a, the Lord gave us a big pair of pants to grow into and we've got a mandate here. Um, so that's going to mean uh, being intelligent and creative about our outreach in the area. And um, these are new Englanders, right? So it's not a matter of if you, if you build it, they will come or, you know, the place will be flooded with new folks just because it's a new church in town because these folks aren't going to church anywhere. Um and it will also be a matter of like really concerted prayer and a certain amount of self-examination. Like, are, are we, are we seeking to bring the gospel to our friends and neighbors? Um, are we doing the best job we can of presenting ourselves as a congregation? Well, uh, removing obstacles, things like that. Um, 
So I have said a few times uh, that New England is a place where for cultural reasons, kind of classic Protestant ministry works relatively well. Um, it's a culture that's more comfortable with formality than some other parts of the country. Although Rhode Island's a little more casual than say Boston is, um, it, it's still much more, you know, showing up to showing up to church and, you know, preaching in a suit does not make you a stiff. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a place where, uh, institutions and institutional life are valued, um, more than some other, uh, parts of the country. So I had a good friend a number of years ago, I'm, I, I'm going off kind of on a tangent about Northeastern ministry, but I had a good friend, um, a few years back who was, who had been a very successful church planter in Southern California, great guy. Um, and he came to new England to church plant. And he said, you know, Southern California, or he said, Californians are um, post-Christian slash spiritual, mm -hmm. meaning, okay, so they're not, you know, there's, you know, there's plenty of Christians everywhere, if you're serious about that, uh, but there's lots and lots of non-Christians, but even the non-Christians think of themselves as spiritual. And so in his, in that context, in that California context, he was saying, um, personal connections, inviting people to your house, uh, um, work pretty well, right? That's a good way to, to kind of get with people. If you are in new England, it's, it's a little bit different. He said, um, new Englanders are post-Christian slash religious, so, which sounds really weird, but they're actually, they might not have much respect at all for the classic Christian gospel or the preaching of the gospel, but they don't feel uncomfortable in a church building, but they do feel uncomfortable in your house. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so door to door stuff. Oh man, no, don't, yeah. don't do it. And now I have done it. Um, I, I, there was a point early on in church planning where I was like, you know, what? I got nothing. I don't have a bunch of organic connections here. I'm not from here. I don't have enough connections through my congregation. Just got to do something. And the Lord used that. But it, it was really confirmed to me, like, this is not a place where they appreciate that. They don't want you in their house unless they know you really, really, really well. So so things like um, having Presbyterian in our name was never a bad thing. I know that, you know, you guys further out out west, um, uh, Joe, does your church, Joe, does your church have Presbyterian in the name? Is it Westminster Reformed Presbyterian? Yep. Okay, but I know a couple of the couple of the Colorado and uh, other front range churches don't even have Presbyterian in the name because it's sort of like it signals uh, theological liberalism. We weren't worried about that <laughs> <laughs> out here, mm -hmm. um, and actually putting Presbyterian in the name signaled um, historicity and legitimacy. Uh, it told people we we weren't a DIY church. Very common question I would get would be, uh, so you're a pastor. Did you go to school for that? Like what kind of, you know, what kind of degree do you have for that? And I'd be like, I have a master's in divinity from a theological seminary. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So you might not be a kook. kook. Um, uh, so the formality, the institutionalism, RP worship um, is not as weird here. I, I, I think. I, I, you know, I, ask me again in 10 years, but so far 15 years in, I, I think, I think it's a fairly good match for new, for new England culture. And at the same time, the gospel is offensive here and everywhere you go. Right. So, um, that's, that's a long tangent. Uh, but I mean, the long and short of it is we are going to, and feel a mandate to really pour ourselves into outreach um, but right now we're at, we're, we're taking the winter nap after a blitz of work, just getting into this building. Yeah. Are you feeling, uh, now that you actually have a building that makes you more legitimate in the eyes of those you're trying to reach, whereas before, maybe not so much. Um, yes and no. Um, I think. I think basically, yes, uh, it doesn't, does a number of things for us. It does give us a, it does give us a face. We have a, you know, permanent sign outside now. 
Um, and the building that we're in is really, really well situated. Like we were plunked down in a uh, walking neighborhood with a lot of foot traffic. We're literally steps. I mean, it's not, it's not half a block. It's like across the street to the bike path mm -hmm. that goes down our side of the state of Rhode Island um, and, uh, and to the bus lines and stuff like that. So, so it gives us visibility. Um, it also, it gives us a, a, a certain amount of, uh, a feeling of permanence. Um, that said the place that we rented for 17 years, and by the way, it is kind of weird that we rented, we were as a church plant, we stayed in the same spot we started for yep. 17 years. Like I grew up in a church plant and we moved like five times when I was a kid. Um, the place where we were was actually pretty good from that perspective in that we rented from an Episcopal church. Uh, uh, we're really profiting from the Episcopal churches here. Uh, we rented from an Episcopal church for 17 years. And then when we bought a building, we bought an Episcopal church building. Um, but the place that we, we were at looked like a church and um, we were able to, we were able to kind of move in there pretty or partially move into the building and not feel like it was, you know, we, it, we didn't have like huge setup and tear down every week, which ch church built church plants have to deal with all the time. Um, so we weren't in real bad shape where we were, but we definitely are in better shape where we are. I, I guess hopefully that answers that question. Yeah. yeah. No, that's helpful. Um, you, you might get a kick out of this for, for some reason, we've got a big old poster of your church building. In our secretary's office. Really? <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, hey, that's where Daniel Howe is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. I didn't yeah. know that we were giving out posters of our church. Well, I, um, I'd I like think, one of those. Yeah. Well, you can have it. I'll send it to you. <laughs> you got to send I me think, a picture yeah. of that later. I think it was just to remind the church to pray for you guys as you were trying to buy the building. I think that's why it's there. Um, well, that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's helpful. Um, congratulations on the building. That's really exciting for you guys. Thank you. We're, we are really, uh, we just could not be more grateful and, and blessed. And it, it feels like, um, uh, you know, neither of you guys are doing church planning right now, but I'm sure you've had exposure to it in one way, shape or form. And, you know, there's there's uh there's kind of two halves. On the one hand, you know theologically the church is not the building, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no look, it's okay. We don't need to have a, a fix the dress or something like that. On the other hand, there is a uh there is a sense of rootedness and permanence that comes from that mm -hmm. that uh is is real and is, and is really, really helpful and really important. Mm -hmm. It also gives it, it also makes us vulnerable, right? Something real bad happens. We've still got a building to take care of and uh, we can't just shut it down next week and say, Hey, everybody, uh, the Lord has decided to bring an end to this and we should all just go elsewhere. Right. There's a, just like if, when you own a house, right. There is a, there's vulnerability that comes along with that great privilege. And blessing yeah. um but i think it's i think it's on the whole it's a good thing yeah yeah well that's exciting you know as the lord continues to uh build the church but by giving you guys a building uh he does so through uh the preaching of his word and that's kind of what we want to transition to in uh now um so we we tend to ask this question to every guest that we have just because it's very interesting for both joe and i as uh you know budding preachers ourselves um What's kind of your philosophy of ministry? And I know some guys kind of don't like the term philosophy of ministry. That's fine. Just how do you go about thinking about um, preaching, what it is, and then what's your kind of weekend, week out sermon preparation process like? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a big those that's a big set of questions. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I think that there's, well, I, I'll put it this way: I've I've come to have a uh, healthy uh, distrust of my own or anybody else's bright ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in this sense, you can have a vision for what you want to see happen in your life, in your congregation, um, in your ministry. And it may be a very good one. 
it may be, and it may be done with, with the purest motives you can muster. Uh, but God is jealous for his own glory. And if that means that he is going to make your great idea just completely flunk, then he will do that. And, um, and I have experienced that many, many different times. Um, and at the same time, I do think that faithfulness requires that you make plans and that you, that you do come up with some strategy. You do try to wisely observe what's going on around you and, um, the opportunities that you have and, you know, try to think out and like, Hey, we need to take some steps and and do some things. Um, so, you know, if I was going to talk about sort of our, our church's vision for the long term, which I, I won't spend long on, but I would say that those years in a church building where we felt like we're we're definitely not going to grow, um, we were praying really hard for a church building where we could grow, mm-hmm. and the reasoning was was fairly, I think, was God honoring, and the reasoning was not because we just want to be this awesome big church although awesome big church is all relative, right? You know, RP mm-hmm. churches sometimes get up to medium sized mm-hmm. and we think they're mega churches and we roll our eyes about big city pastors, right? <laughs> um, rich, big city pastors. Um, but because as we thought about church planting, we, you know, we look around at our region and we think like, we really, I mean, it's wide open. We're the first RP church to be organized in New England in over a hundred years. So the, the, the region's wide open and it's not like, oh, but there's lots of others. When we got here, there was, I think, two other Napark churches in the state. Hmm. And now there's two, one more, two more than us. I mean, it's still not, it, it's still kind of wide open. Um, but as we looked, as we thought about church planning, we thought, okay, all right, we planted with a tiny little group of people, right? It was like 16 people or something like that. And the Lord has grown us to this sort of sustainable size, but it took a really long time. And I tend to think that our RP churches jump to planting maybe a little on the early side. Um, like you can plant with that number of people, but can you can you do it sustainably? Can you do it in kind of a, a, a healthy way? Maybe is the answer. Um, better, if possible, to grow a bit bigger. And then when you plant churches, send 40 people off, mm-hmm. right? Which I know, I know is, is some of the experience you guys on the front range have had. Um, uh, although you probably weren't around for that at, at that point, Joe. Um, and I think that's, I think that's basically good. And and so that's what our, our session has been praying about for probably at least about four or five years um, is that the Lord would let uh, give us a facility that would allow us to grow to a healthy, maybe medium size or large, large, small size, at least so that we would be able to sustainably and repeatedly uh, plant churches in the decades to come. And that that's sort of our, our vision here. Um, what does that look like as far as day-to-day ministry? Uh, we're, we're a Christian church. We're doing the things that Christian churches do, right? We have a, a we have worship services, you know, it's morning and we added our evening service back in um, later than some congregations did post COVID because COVID's more on uh, more on the minds of crowded Northeastern cities than it is <laughs> on some folks' minds. Um, but we're, you know, we're back to that, you know, sort of classic means of grace ministry and a strong focus on that. And that's stuff I think we're fairly good at. And then warm uh, sort of family-based, uh, or mostly family-based, uh, devotion and mutual care of each other and seeing what the Lord sends our way. And a big thing for us over the years has been, um, ministry among refugees, uh, particularly refugees from, from East Africa, from Burundi, um, to some extent, Rwanda, and a lot from Eastern Congo. And that's something that was really, it's going to sound like a, it's an annoying way to put it, but it's really in our DNA. Um, as in we started out doing what we thought was going to be a short-term mercy project, um, back in the fall of 2007. So I'd been ordained for like three months at that point. And, um, the Lord turned that into, um, a, a ministry that's still with us to some extent. 
and is very interesting um, and sometimes extremely difficult. Uh, but it but has overall been a real blessing. So for a while, I think we were the biggest Congolese church <laughs> in Rhode Island <laughs> for for a little while. That's that, that there's there's more now, but um, we had we had quite a few. And and by the way, that has kept us. Um, I remember I, I had this conversation with um, uh, Alan Blackwood a couple of years ago, um, who's by the way one of the best askers of questions I've ever met. <laughs> I love Seri- it. Seriously, yeah. he's he's yeah. really 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 good at that. Um, but I, I wound up telling him I think that the refugee ministry uh, really kept us humble. Um, we never thought that we had it figured out. Uh, we we were never allowed to think that we had it figured out. We were never allowed to get sort of um, complacent and and arrogant because we were always making mistakes. We were always just like making some sort of stupid mistake that caused trouble, and we had to had to you know apologize to people and repent to people and try better. And we dropped balls and, and, um, folks that we were ministering to were exceedingly, um, gentle and patient with us, uh, having gone through way harder things than most of us have. I mean, I have folks in my, many folks who have come through my church, including a number right now, who've had immediately immediate family members killed in front of them in war, um, who have had children, separated from them who have, who have had family members die of preventable diseases, uh, just incredible stuff. And so it's really, it's really prevented us, you know, mostly, although not all white Americans, um, from thinking that we had it figured out. Um, so I, I, I've come to, you know, back to something I said early in this long, um, long, long response, um, I'm very suspicious of my own bright ideas. I do think you need to plan, but you need to hold on to your plans very loosely. And you need to be very ready to um, wisely, patiently, and compassionately respond to the things that come at you. Um, because pastoral, you know, what we call sort of pastoral problems are going to, they're always going to be there. You know, people's marriages are going to be falling apart. People's kids are going to be going off the deep end. Um, people are going to be struggling with uh, patience or with anger issues. Um, and you're just trying to feed the sheep and where they stray, you're trying to go get them back. So I, I think I, I, I'm not against the phrase philosophy of ministry, but I, I think, I think ministry is ministry. I mean, there's, there's, you can, you can go over to sort of the empire building thing. Um, but God is uh, Rosaria Butterfield in an interview said a while back, like, look, we're from a small denomination that nobody cares about. <laughs> right? We're just never going to be the cool kids. Right. Uh, and, and that is, that is, uh, that is a grace of the Lord to us. Like he, he is keeping us humble. Um, I, I could wear the tightest jeans in the world. I'm never going to be one of the cool kids. Yeah, please don't. <laughs> I, you know, I, I got, I'm sure you've out. got great legs, but please don't. <laughs> I, I had through a combination of weightlifting and, uh, eating too much cake. Uh, I did, uh, I was moderator of our presbytery one year and a guy was like, oh, here we go with the skinny jeans. I was like, oh, I'm wearing skinny. I didn't realize <laughs> time to go shopping for new pants. Not doing that again. <laughs> um, uh, so you're asking you you brought up uh, sermon preparation as mm-hmm. well, and I was yeah. like, I, I think Chat GPT is God's gift to us, and uh, <laughs> we should just make <laughs> make use of it. Uh, no, I'm kidding, of course. Um, I was really blessed to have to be struggling with um, philosophy of preaching from back when I was in college. Uh, so I, I attended Geneva College for two years and did two years at um, the University of the State of New York, where I grew up. And um, when I was in, when I was at Geneva, we had a lot of really live debates. Uh, my, my knot of friends were, were, um, were all like CRC or OP guys. And we had a lot of arguments about preaching or discussions about preaching that, that carried me into seminary. And then that carried me into ministry later on. And the, when I was coming up, the big debate was between what you might call, um, it's not a very nice phrase, but moralistic or exemplary preaching. 
um, on the one hand, sort of Puritan preaching uh, and biblical theological or redemptive historical preaching on the other hand, which you guys are nodding like, yeah, the people are still talking about that stuff. Um, but I thought, you know, I thought when I was even an undergraduate, certainly when I was in seminary, this is, this is, this debate is screwed up. Like the terms of this are, are off somehow. Like you're going to say on the one hand, you've got guys who double down on their exemplary preaching, like says examples, these things are given to us as examples. So you just got to preach them as examples. And then you had other guys who were like, application is for sissies. You know, we just want to preach Christ. And I'm like, I'm reading the new Testament. And like, Jesus is all that. And Paul is all of that. Like there's no, you know, there's two halves to the book of Ephesians. You can't read that and be like, no, I'm on team first half of Ephesians or I'm on team second half of Ephesians. And then, um, Really interesting, you know, interestingly, kind of between when I went through, I, I graduated from seminary in my early 20s. Um, and I, for five years, I taught um, high school uh, at a high school in Boston. I taught Bible to high schoolers, which from all different backgrounds, some Christian, some not, which was awesome training. Um, but I had a good chance while I was in there. I was still preaching some of the time and still hanging out with uh, the late. Christian Ajemian, who was pastor of um, the Cambridge RP Church at that time. Um, that was really valuable time for some of those things to sort of sort out in my mind. And um, I really do think, and I, I have his book on preaching. I haven't read it yet, but I've I've listened to a number of his lectures on preaching. I really do think Tim Keller actually got his hands on that debate very well, whether you like his, you know, his particular style or not. He he actually nailed it. He basically said, we have to do both. Uh, if you if you just give people um, the Bible as examples, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but basically you lay aside your entire hermeneutical key, right? So why should Abraham be my example? And what parts of Abraham should be my example? How do I understand Abraham as my example? Well, you, you don't apart from Christ, but in Christ... You do. And you know which parts of Abraham, you, you find out which parts of Abraham are, are laudable and praiseworthy and which parts you need to throw away. Um, and so it's got to be both. It's got to be biblical, theological and and applied if it's not applied on some level. And the application can sometimes just be worship, right? right. Praise him for who he is. Look, here is your Lord and all his glory. And right now, I don't want to give you three tips on how to save your marriage from that. I just want you to worship him. Um, but sometimes you do need to give people three tips on how to save their marriage uh, that that flow from scripture, hopefully not just from your own bright ideas. Uh, but you need to have both. It has to be Christocentric and it has to be applied. Um, so that's, I mean, that's sort of the, the way I think about preaching. Uh, when I'm when I'm preparing sermons, I you know I'm not going to say anything that's radically different from other people. I think um, I I try to my my Greek and Hebrew both kind of suck. My Hebrew sucks more than my Greek, um, which is probably true of a lot of people, except my brother-in-law Brian Wright. Um, <laughs> he's annoying. He's uh, a great guy. <laughs> he's super annoying. No, I I love Brian. Brian is a great guy, um, but uh, I I do you know slog through the translation using the computer tools and the, you know, and the book tools and the same things everybody else relies on. Uh, most people rely on. Some people are really genuinely good at the languages. I don't think I am. Um, I will try to pay attention to details. I think, to be honest, I think more than giving you some sort of amazing exegesis results, the process of translation actually just makes you slow down um, and Mm -hmm. just spend a lot more time reading it than you otherwise would have. Uh, and that's just priceless. You know, you have to read it slowly. Um, and then I always try to like tease out, not necessarily sermon points or applications, but like tease out some, like, here are some things that are coming through this text that are striking me. And I, I learned as a teacher many years ago, if something is, if something is, if I find something really interesting, then maybe my hearers will find it interesting. If I don't find something interesting, if I'm just saying the things I know you're supposed to say, 
there is no chance that my hearers will find it interesting. So I better, I better get into this. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So, so translating it, spending time in it, um, writing down your own thoughts and kind of questions, uh, as you go and then using the tools, right. You never want to like start out with a, with a commentary or something like that. And for tools, I'm trying to, I try to use a mix, right. Um, so it's kind of like the old saying about uh, what you need in a wedding, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. So for me, I really like to, whenever if I can get my hands on a patristic commentator or just one of those, um, oh, what was it? The, uh, like the ancient Christian commentary series. That's just like a hodgepodge. I've had people roll their eyes at me using this. They're like, well, you're not really using, you know, Salvian the presbyter. Like he was, yeah, I, I'm just just a pastor here, man. Just trying to do my best. <laughs> uh, but here with here with these very different perspectives have to say, um, and I do actually ascribe more authority. Uh, I, I take the church fathers really seriously. Um, they were living in, in much closer to the world of the Bible than we are, and so I, I think we need to slow down. I know people say like, well, you know, the Reformation is really the high point. Well, yeah, maybe, but if you read Calvin, he's just chalk. He's been reading the patristics mm -hmm. like crazy. So I, I try to, I try to get some, try to read some patristics in there. Um, usually get a reformation guy in there and Calvin is the gold standard um, for reformation era commentators. Um, I find then, Calvin writes a commentary on every book, except what I'm preaching through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like a handful. He, he yeah. just didn't get to. And it's always like, Oh, let's see. Oh, Calvin doesn't have anything to say about that. Thanks, man. Thanks for nothing. Um, uh, and then something, something recent, uh, ideally something recent that's on the conservative side and something recent that's on the, the critical, uh, liberal side. And the reason there's two reasons to read the critical liberal guys. One is that they're often just better scholars. Um, as in, you'll pick up if you pick up an anchor commentary or a Hermenia uh, commentary, those dudes like taught at Utrecht or they taught at oh, what's the what's the German university that uh, all the evil guys came out of, Boltmann <laughs> came out of, and stuff like that. They taught at a German or a or a Dutch or a French university or Oxford or Cambridge or Durham, and they they read French. German, Italian, Latin, whatever ancient languages they need to. And you know what, frankly, the American evangelicals that are like guys who are coming out of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, putting out a lot of commentaries right now, they don't like, maybe they read one of those, but most of them don't, they're just not, they're just not scholars on the same level. So they, they have a breadth and a scholarliness that's really helpful. And the other is they are willing to come up with completely crazy theories um and ask completely inappropriate questions now most of the time you have to throw them out because they're not <laughs> they're unacceptable and some whole commentaries you have to throw out by the way like uh Konzelman and debilius on um the hermenia this is the hermenia um uh commentary on on the pa pastoral epistles total garbage <laughs> like it was completely useless and i want to like after trying it for a month or two, I was like, all right, well, I'm just taking this back to the library. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes they're going to come at you with something really kind of kind of off base, but it's actually really, really helpful. And that's the kind of thing I, I have, I think, undiagnosed attention deficit stuff going on. And so like, I'm always like the sparks going off here, bing, 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 bing. Mm -hmm. That's super helpful for me. And then the the challenge for me is to take take some of those sparks and see if they go someplace, see if they're the beginning of a breadcrumb trail that takes you someplace really good. And sometimes they're not, but sometimes, you know, they're going to take you to a really interesting uh, uh, facet of the word and help you see things you just would not have seen. So I I, I do recommend that for most people you have at least one like really, really critical, maybe theologically liberal commentator in there and you just be ready to spit out the bones. And I think that's a good habit anyway. I like, I read, I read Douglas Wilson. I like a lot of Douglas Wilson stuff. I don't want anybody to just be a Douglas Wilson fanboy 
and accept everything he says is gospel because he's really wrong about some stuff. Um, but it doesn't mean you can't profit from it. You can profit from anybody. So I, I kind of take that approach. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, that that can be helpful. My, my perspective on some of the critical guys and um, even Wilson at times is it's kind of like walking through a minefield to pick daisies. Like you might find <laughs> some good stuff, but you also might blow your leg off too at the same time. Um, so that, that's kind of my perspective on it, but I, I can see how you might find it helpful. Well, I so so to that point, though, that's a good point. I'd rather walk through the minefield than have everybody else walking through the minefield. Mm-hmm. I'm not, uh, you know, if I step on that, I'll know what it is and I'll know how to deal with it. Um, whereas I'm not going to I'm not going to start sending out. I don't know. I, I brought up Douglas Wilson, but he's, you know, could be almost anybody. I'm not going to start sending out willy nilly just every article I find interesting. Sure. But I do, I do think that I think that breadth is really important. Um, probably for me, that's, I, I, I think that to a fault that, that tends to be the way I operate. I don't read as many of the, whatever the, you know, reformed books are. I read a lot of non-reformed books. I read a lot of non-Christian books that are just of interest to me mm-hmm. and i'm kind of try, trying to triangulate on the truth a little bit better um my wife always tells me i always reinvent the wheel but if i can hopefully you know do that without everybody having to be around for all the mm-hmm. garbage attempts at reinventing the wheel then then i'm i'm doing what i should sure sure well we've uh we've taken up over an hour but uh joe you want to kind of ask our uh mystery question yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, thank you for that. I've I've been really blessed by each one of these conversations on preaching so far. There's been a helpful nuggets in all of them. So, anyways, we um our first our first four guests got asked the question, uh, "Could Jesus have gotten sick?" Aaron and I answered <laughs> that he couldn't have, but we went zero for four. Uh, Kyle, Nathan Eshelman, George Gregory, and Barry York all disagreed with us. Um, and so last last um, ep- episode we interviewed Joel Hart, and so we kind of started a new a new run of questions for February's guests, and they're and they're they're kind of just fun theological questions. Um, so this one I'm gonna I'm gonna state the passages to you, and that's not to stack the deck or anything. It's just to these are these are the reasons that people wonder about this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has to do with individual guardian angels. Matthew eighteen ten, mm-hmm. Jesus is talking about the little ones, and he mentions their angels. And then in mm-hmm. Acts twelve fifteen, when Peter's broken out of prison, he goes to the house. Rhoda freaks out, goes back, and they're like, uh, "It's not Peter. It's probably his angel." His angel. Yep. Yeah. And so, so those two passages, I've read some guys on them. I think it's just an interesting topic and maybe we can solve, uh, solve this debate within four (laughs) episodes, maybe not, but what, what, what is Daniel Howe's position or thoughts specifically on individual guardian angels? Cause we know as Hebrews one fourteen said, uh, the, the angels are ministering spirits. So we understand in a sense, they're all guardian angels in, in a, in a way, but what, what's what's your thoughts on individual guardian angels? Hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm optimistic. I think you'll get this, you know, 500 year old uh, angelological uh, question resolved this month. You, you should you should be able to knock that out. <laughs> um, uh, I I think that I think that there are such things as individual guardian angels. Um, I I think that. Um, you know, one of the things we have to wrestle with when we're reading the New Testament is there's a lot of, we think we we understand Jesus's background and Paul's background because we know the Old Testament pretty well, but there's 500 years of history between Malachi and Matthew, right? Um, and there's also a lot of theological reflection. And a big part of that is the angelology that um, that was developed among the Jews during that time. And Jesus seems to ratify certain aspects of it. He seems to confirm certain aspects of it or take them as read. So um, without trying to go too wild on what you do with the doctrine, I do, te- I do tend to think like the passages you cited, you know, the, you know, Peter at, 
Peter at uh, Mark's house and um, uh, Jesus talking about the, the angels of the little ones seeing the, the face of the father. Um, I think that that tends to confirm that. And, and it gets even weirder, which is like, especially it comes up in the, in the Acts passage with Peter, um, the guardian angels uh, look like the people that they're guarding. I mean, that's, that's the, that was, I think, current, consensus or belief among Jews concerning angels, guardian angels. Well, if that's the case, Joe, I feel sorry for your guardian angel. Yeah. Maybe maybe they're more glorified versions of us. Mine has hair on top yeah. of his head and things like that. You know, um a little little more trim. Uh but I think I yeah, again, like not wanting to go too far as far as what you do with that, because I, I do think uh, you know, there's plenty of warnings against worship of angels and, you know, wild speculative theology that does seem to be, that does seem to be what Jesus is saying. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I still don't know exactly my thoughts on it, but I certainly think that's, I mean, that's the most surface level. I mm-hmm. mean, you just read those passages and that seems to be the most natural, just what he's saying, <laughs> you know, I mean, mm-hmm. um, so it, it was interesting hearing Joel Hart on this as well. You know, he said three years ago or something, he would have answered no way. But, you know, his his position is softened and, and thinks there's there's much more, I think he said, maybe vitality uh, mm-hmm. to the angelic world and a lot of things that, that in a sense, he wasn't, he had softened to the point of, of essentially saying, I don't know, you know, at this point, I think that's, that's where I'm at too. But at the same time, I do agree with you, like, I, I think that's the the plain reading of the text for the most part. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that um, we always have to wrestle with as far as like understanding our own context and our own worldview is that we're very much uh, empty sky moderns, right? We're, we, we very much view it sort of, well, God's up there. I mean, conceptually God's up there and we're down here. There's, you know, air in between. And um, I think we need to get a lot less modern in the way we think about things. I mean, certainly we've got plenty of reason to be suspicious of that coming from the other end, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of demonic stuff going on, um, maybe more overt and in our faces than it has been at some other points in history. So mm-hmm. um, I think, I think we can, but, you know, as far as the speculative end of things, Set that set that in the hands of the Lord and trust Him to take care of us and surround us with His angels. Yeah. Well, we've uh, we've taken up ten minutes more of your time than we promised we would, but this has been a uh, really fascinating and fun interview, at least for me. So, Daniel, thank you for uh, joining. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. I'd love to talk again. And uh, you know, hey, you, you get a you get a pastor on a Thursday afternoon wanting to talk about something other than the sermon he's supposed to be writing. <laughs> Who's going to say no to that? That that is that is the truth. <laughs> All right, this has been another episode of the Blue Banter Podcast. Whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God.